Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Swapcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torrent Strait Islander peoples today. We're talking again about swapping to more, to more, to white and back again. Welcome to the Swapcast Podcast, the world's only podcast dedicated to body swap movies. I'm your host, Paul Mitzi. Lucy and Brendan are both taking a break this week, but I have an extra special treat because joining me today is an absolute icon, the star of the Body Swap Classic 18 again, as well as some truly iconic projects such as The Delinquents, Diagnosis Murder, Ferris Bueller, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Charlie Schlotter. Paul, thank you very much, sir. Wow, that's that's a crazy nice in- introduction. I don't know if I deserve that. But thank you. Definitely do. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for making the time to be in our show. Uh, How's life in LA right now? It's good. You know, everybody complains about something, but I'm not gonna. I uh, I have to say, just you know, great weather. Um, It's it's awesome. Um, Yeah, everybody's happy, healthy. No COVID on this side of the globe, and uh, you know, in our family, and we're all good. We're all good. I'm definitely jealous of the weather because it is freezing in Adelaide right now. Yeah, but that's just now. You guys normally have, have it pretty good. Oh, yeah. We, we've come off a run of like 30 degree weather for four months. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> I still can complain. Yeah. All right. So I would love to start with 18 again. Sure. Which was the 1988 <clears throat> comedy starring yourself, George Burns, Paulie Shaw and Red Buttons where your character swaps bodies with his grandfather on his 81st birthday. This was your second feature film. So how did you become attached to that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, how did I get attached? I, <clears throat> I, had just, I had just completed work on, a mo- on my first movie ever. It was called Bright Lights, Big City with Michael J. Fox. And I played his younger brother in that. And, that came about just because I, I was pretty much doing a, a play in upstate New York and a casting director had seen me in it and said, gosh, you know, I think you'd be really great for this thing that they're casting right now called Bright Lights, Big City. And it's funny, I, I had read the book by Jay McInerney and I, I said, well, what part? And they said, for the, the lead's brother, the brother. And I go, oh, uh, I said, well, in, in the book, you know, they described the brother as like this big strapping lad who... I, they, I think he's described as he fills a door frame or a door, whatever. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm kind of a Shetland guy. And uh, she said, well, the lead is Michael J. Fox. You'd be playing his brother. So I said, oh, that's that sounds doable. So, um, yeah, I, I auditioned for it. And I ended up getting it like that day because they had just they were recasting everybody. They had a new director, new this, new that. And 
And I guess they were just kind of under the gun to move quickly. And I guess I was maybe the shortest white guy who walked in there to play his brother. And so I got the part. And then um, I kind of went back after we shot. I went back um, to Ithaca, New York, where I was going to school. And it was still in the summer. So I went back and I did a production of Tartuffe. And while I was doing that, I, I got a call from my new agent now because now I'm, now I'm all fancy. I'm strapped. I got agents and all that stuff. And they said, would you like to come and, you know, into New York, you know, about a four hour drive. Would you like to come down and audition for this thing called uh, 18 again with George Burns? I said, oh, my God. Yeah, of course. So as soon as I was done, as soon as the play was wrapped, I, I drove down to New York and they put me on video because it was being cast in L.A. Um, oh, but here's the the reason I even got that call was because a woman, uh, the casting director, her name was Melissa Scoff. She apparently they had been looking for a long time for this part. And, you know, back then, casting directors didn't just go online and find people. They went to clubs. They went to plays. They went to things and they would discover people. But. So just one word of mouth led to another, and she heard about there's this new kid who's doing this Michael J. Fox thing. Well, who's he? Send me some. Anyway, they sent her some tape on me that they had like dailies or whatever from eighteen uh, from uh, Bright Lights Big City. So she looked at that and said, "Oh, okay, this 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 guy looks like he could be the the guy." And because of that, I got the call, like I said, to audition in New York, and, and so I did my little thing. And I think it was like two days later. I was on a plane to New York to meet with the producer, uh, Walter Koblenz, and to meet with Paul Flaherty, the director, who's just the nicest human being on the planet. Um, and so I went in there and I did my little shtick, my little cigar thing and whatever. And uh, they basically said, we, we, want you, we want you to be in this movie. I said, okay. And that was it. I went back. I collected a couple of things. And I think like a couple weeks later, I moved out to L.A., not permanently, but just came out for the shoot, um, which took about three months or so. So that's kind of so how that thing happened, just the process. So in that casting process, was there a lot of talk about how similar you were to George Burns? Like, were they trying to get someone that kind of looked like him at your age? Or, I think they, um, you know, because it, because it wasn't so much like an impersonation, you know, I think they just wanted somebody who embodied George. It's funny, though, the director will tell me or had told me, he goes, you know, it wasn't because of how you performed George that got you this part. It's everything else. So I go, oh, my God, that's, I, you know, is that good or bad? <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, I, I think it was good. And then, you know, and then we just kind of worked on it, um, you know, and in so much as embodying George it's funny, my real grandfather was from the same area of New York uh, when he grew up. He was from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And whenever I couldn't really draw upon, like, oh, I wonder what George Burns would do in this situation, I'd just say, what would my grandfather do? How would he behave? What's, what, would, what would his posturing be? And so I just kind of drew on that well, you know, well for physicality, for the sound of things, because he did. He was very much like George, just this very close to the vest, just a great straight man um, and, and very witty and, and funny. So that's really that's where I really drew a lot from, because I I knew 
who George Burns was, obviously, because this is back in 1988. And and he was at that time, he was a living legend. Everybody alive knew who George Burns was. If you know, if you knew who Santa Claus was, you knew who George Burns was. And uh, I had never met him. But then it was so funny when I finally did meet him. They're walking me down this hallway. We're in Beverly Hills going into his office and his manager's walking us down the hallway. And you could smell the cigars like from the second <laughs> you walk in. Which is like the first indication, hey, George is near. Um, <laughs> and then you go down this little skinny hallway into this room, which is his office, his hangout, his little man cave. And he's sitting up high on this director chair with a cigar, drinking tea out of a mug. And on the mug, it said God. And I thought, oh, my <laughs> gosh, this is the best thing ever. And so just from there, you know, it, he goes, is that the kid? And they go, yeah. He goes, I'll take him. Uh, and, and he was just great. He was just the, I, I can't even tell you. It was just, you were in awe the whole time you were with him. And, and so was everybody involved in the project. It was, everybody knew how special it was, which doesn't happen yeah. ever. Like, I think watching the film, you can really, I, I, I think, a lot of what makes it work is your embodiment of George Burns and um, like how much of that was you like following him around and observing him? Like, did they, did you get a lot of time with George Burns like in the pre-production stage? No, no. And um, you know, and if I did, it was like, we would go to dinner. Um, so it wasn't, there was no, George did not rehearse with you. You'd had like no practice. Um, he came to the set with his lines in the noodle, he knew everything. He, he didn't say like, Oh, I'm, uh, I'm the director. I'm going to go from here to here to here. He, what you're going to, you know, cause you've always, you, you hear stories about those guys. All right. The camera's going to follow me. I'm going to, no, he was so respectful of the director and the process and whose film, you know, he knew whose film it was. Um, and that, that's really the only time I, I worked with him. Uh, and yeah, when you when you are sitting at lunch together, I'm observing him a little bit. Um, I think like really the only tip he gave me uh, as to how to be him was to switch the cigar from my right hand to my left. And I said, oh, are you left handed? And he said, no, I'm right handed. And I said, well, why do you smoke with your left hand? He said, well, this way, when I was doing vaudeville, if I ever had to adjust the microphone, I would have my hand free to move things. And that's it. So I just had to kind of get used to smoking with the, the left hand. And that was about it. <laughs> so were you actually smoking cigars throughout the whole film? Like, was, Were you oh, really taking it in? Oh, yeah. But, you know, I, I don't know if you've ever had a cigar, but, you know, you don't like really take it deep into your lungs. You just kind of yeah. puff it and blow it. And, and even yeah. it's so funny because even George Burns, you know, they say, oh, you'd smoke 20 cigars a day he probably just had 20 of them burning all day and he would just mm -hmm. puff on a, on a punchline for something. That's all like to him. That's yeah. all that cigar was, was just a, <laughs> you know, the, the yeah. emphasis of a joke, but he wasn't like, you know, a hardcore smoker. And another interesting fact is this. So many fans would send him cigars from across the globe and like, you know, hundred dollar, $200 cigars because they exist yeah. and people would send them. He, he would basically just give them away or just throw them away um, because he only smoked Dutch masters Queens, which is like equivalent back then to like a 25 cent cigar. 
Hmm. And he liked those because they didn't, you didn't have to keep relighting them. He said, now the cheaper cigars, they keep burning because for his act, he didn't want to have to stop and light and do all that messy stuff. He just wanted to stand there, tell jokes, puff, move on. So is that what you were also smoking in the film then? Oh yeah, totally. That's, you know, you go to craft service, you know, there's pop tarts, fruit loops, apples, and a bunch of cigars for anybody who wants cigars. (laughs) So everyone, so, um, I mean, it was like a smoke fest. It was crazy. <laughs> uh, did the film kind of give you the taste for them? Are there, is that something that's still in your life now? It isn't anymore. Um, every now and then I will. But, you know, it's funny. Like, I I did continue to smoke them. Um, but then it became like the early 90s. And everyone was smoking cigars. And I thought, oh, I don't want to be like everybody. This is, it was so trendy. <laughs> like all of a sudden it became trendy for like these young guys to start, you know, because I think Cigar yeah. Aficionado had just come out and blah, blah, blah. And all these fancy humidors. And then there's Schwarzenegger smoking cigars. And <laughs> I just thought, nah, I'm, I'm kind of done with this. But, you know, at a birthday, they're the birth of someone or a wedding. I'm, I'm going to light up. <laughs> Uh, so George Burns wasn't the only like iconic actor in this film. Um, there was also Red Buttons. And yeah, I think uh, a moment that really stands out in the film for me is uh, when you guys sing "Light of the Silvery Moon" together. Um, yeah, was that a really special moment filming it, or did you feel like it was at the time? Oh, I, you know, I knew it was at the time. It's so funny. Like I come from a family that you know we're just a blue collar family who just really love to be entertained and you know red buttons was one of those guys to us he was one of those comics that we loved and we just found so much joy from and beyond my dad you know my grandfather who was born in 1920 he was a big fan of vaudeville so you know of course he knew who george was and he knew who red was and so when i got to just kind of do like that little shuffle with red buttons it was you know i just got to kind of firsthand just kind of get into a time machine, I guess, and and go back and and do that kind of fun stuff. Um, so I I did I I I knew how great it was. I know now even more how great it was. I wish I knew back then. You know, I, I wish I had more appreciation. I know that I appreciated it, and I know like those moments. I thought, oh my god, this is like fifty years of of vaudeville history that I'm dancing with or whatever. But now, like in hindsight, I think, gosh, that's that was like a really great thing that happened to me. Um, but again, Paul, I, I was really appreciative even at those moments. I knew it. I never took one of those moments for granted. I think a lot of your um, early career seems to be a bit of a time machine towards that era, like even the delinquents and uh, even your first movie, like they were all kind of geared towards this 50s and earlier kind of time frame uh yeah did did your i guess your grandfather and your father really react to that i don't you know i i don't know so much um i think they were they were always just more about like uh you know the the project the music the whatever was going on in it It, i don't think we ever sat back and said oh this is kind of an interesting thing because i i did kind of do a mix of contemporary but you're right i did like some period stuff like even the heartbreak hotel that took place in the early 70s and it was just uh 
I don't know. You you just kind of I, I I really don't think I've thought about that to be honest with you. It was just you kind of went from one film to the next, and you tried not to do the same thing twice in a row, at least you know, not until later on. Uh, but yeah, you just try to kind of do things that were interesting to you. Um, so in the film, your character does quite a bit of athletics. Is that something that comes naturally to you or did you have to do a lot of training and preparation for those scenes? Cause you, you do seem like naturally gifted in that when you watch the film, but I don't know how much of that is movie magic or not. Oh, no, I, thanks. I, you know, I, I did, I, I played sports in school always um, until, you know, everyone kind of grew except me. And then I kind of got into theater and, and did that. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of running, a lot of jumping. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, you know, more than anything, your adrenaline takes over when, when skill is lacking. Adrenaline just says, oh, I'll do this for you. <laughs> Uh, but they did. I actually had for because I came out to L.A. about two weeks, maybe three weeks before we started filming. And during those weeks, I had a um, a track trainer, which I thought was like the craziest thing I had ever heard of. I said, don't you just like run in a circle? And they're like, no, there's a skill to it. And, <laughs> you know, I, I seriously thought, oh, you run a mile, you just do four laps and you're done. Uh, but no, it was all about how to have your fingers, how to blow. It was, oh my gosh, this is like real stuff. So anyway, I did, I had trainers for all that stuff. Um, I don't know if you get to see uh, me doing the pole vault, uh, but that's actually me not making it over. But I will tell you (laughs) that pole is like a thousand pounds. It's the heaviest damn thing. And to run with that and then to get it in the, whatever they call that thing, that was rough, but they did have like, they had a, a guy there you know, a real pole vaulter, Olympic style, who actually got over like every time. And then they said, why don't you try it, Charlie? You know, and <laughs> what they ended up with, you know. Because like when you're shooting the track scenes, like I'm assuming they don't just do it once. Like how long are you running for in a day of shooting that? Oh, it was, it was, it was long. I mean, you probably you know the the track stuff we were out at that track for probably like three days just doing stuff and one of the days probably ran at least 10 miles 12 miles um you know it's funny i i love tony stark anthony stark the actor who plays the heavy uh russ russ deacon was that his name russ i think it was Russ. russ yeah yeah uh you know, yeah, he's such a good heavy, such a good bad guy. And <laughs> anyway, in the final scene of the movie, and I'm sure by now I'm not, this isn't a spoiler alert, I'm supposed <laughs> to win the race. We yeah. did about five takes prior to me winning where he kept winning. You know, because <laughs> I'm supposed to win by like a hair. So it was like really, t- and we had to like do it from a quarter mile out. But at that at that point in the race, we're like, we're sprinting. We're like really giving it everything we have. And after like the fourth one or fifth one, I said, Tony, you got to read the freaking script, man. I win this race. And he's like, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, yeah. So that, that was really rough, but, um, but yeah, for, for, you know, a lot of it was, you just kind of followed the car running after the car. Um, and then the fall, I remember I fell in that thing and they wanted me to trip, but I really did. Like I really got my cleat stuck in the clay and 
<laughs> and I think you could actually see me saying, oh, fuck, or oh, shit, or something, really. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my, no, that, because it really, it hurt my leg. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I, you know, you can't complain about that, though. You just get out there and run. You're 20 years old, 21 years old. Run. Yeah, well, you, you do seem like, watching some of the stuff from this era, you do seem like someone that was quite willing to do your own stunts and really be physical in your films like uh, i was wondering because it's kind of in um in shadow but in the delinquents there's a, a sequence where you're you and kylie are like looking over a barrier and then your character does a flip and then runs down this really steep hill and i'm like if it, it looks like that was really you but i okay I didn't... that wasn't me that's okay. that's a stunt guy but I will tell you this. Here's something. There is a scene where Brownie Hansen crawls up this pole at a movie theater and like yes. removes yeah. removes a letter or something like that. Anyway, the Marlon Brando's name off of the the top of the yeah, yeah yeah. So we had a we had a stunt guy. I can't remember remember his name. I'm so, I'm so sorry for that. I apologize if he's watching. But great guy, very similar to me. And anyway, he. They film him doing the thing. He shimmies up there, blah, 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 lands like a cat, takes off the letter, does whatever he does. And they go, Charlie, you want to take a shot at it? I go, yeah, sure. So I go and and I do almost the same thing. It probably didn't look as great, but I did it and they, they didn't use it. I was kind of, I just thought, <laughs> why did you use his? They go, well, just because his looked a lot better. And I said, but I, my character doesn't have to be great at that, you know, anyway. But I always, whenever there is a stunt, and you know it seems relatively safe you know you, you try it you just do it like within character whether it's hopping a fence or whatever try to do as much as you can i think now that i'm older it's probably like yeah let the kid do it um <laughs> that, you know i'm too tired i'm i'm tired <laughs> um so paulie shaw is in 18 again um and he actually delivers quite like a sweet and restrained performance from i guess what people are used to especially to what his filmography became in the 90s yeah Uh, so what do you think is closer to his actual personality the character he played in this film or the crazy characters he started playing afterwards i well i'll preface this whole thing by saying i haven't seen a lot of the things that he's that he's done after it you know i i just haven't um i will say this i i think paulie's performance in in the movie is really good and like you said a lot of it is really just restrained it's understated and i credit that to to paulie naturally but also our director too who really knew how to pull paulie in and you know there was a lot of scenes in there that paulie and i did that didn't make it just because, you know, scenes just if, if it doesn't move the movie forward, that that's the first step that's lost. You know what I mean? Regardless of how good the scene is, you know, but if you have like a, a five minute scene of Paulie and I eating lettuce and it's really funny, but it doesn't mean anything, you lose it. Anyway, yeah. we had done Paulie and I did a lot of really like funny, funny scenes that never made it to the movie but that were so like tucked under that were really, I think really good. Um, and I do think like Paulie was one of the, he was the first guy I was hanging out with when I came to LA. So we became really great friends during the shoot of 18 again. And we did so many things together and used to hang out at the comedy store all the time. 
so we always got into a little bit of mischief, like healthy mischief, good stuff. Um, and, and he was, he was like very, he was a very, very sweet guy. I really, really liked Pauly. Um, and then I went away for a while and came back in town like a year or so later after I kind of had to move to LA and we kind of had a friendship, but I guess we just kind of went different ways and whether it be careers or, or whatever, uh, we just kind of, like I said, went, went a different way. I haven't seen Paulie in forever. Uh, I have a feeling if I did see him right now, it would be just hugs and hugs. Uh, and it would be so great to see him, you know, when you're 50 something years old, you know, it's just, it's just kind of nice to have those touchstones to go back and say, Oh my God, Paul, look at you, you know? So, but no, he was, I, I think that that personality that you see was very close to him. This other, the whole, the, the weasel buddy that I think was just a, a persona that he created for comedy and yeah. you know at some point it, it it paid off you know he made those the, the we not the weasel movies but i don't know what were they called uh, like he did like Damn. he did like jury duty and biodome and all those kind of like, yeah and there was an army yeah. movie too wasn't there it was, yeah yeah in the yeah, army all that, now. yeah like that fish out of water stuff but you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so one thing we kind of picked up on in our review of the film is that we thought his character maybe had a bit of a crush on your character. There was Ooh. maybe, maybe unrequited love there. Uh, was that something intended or is that just something we just picked up on? I, you know, I think, I think it's something that probably people look at now as something like that because there's more of that type of adoration in films that you know a guy loving another guy in that romantic way back then in 1987 when we were shooting the movie there was no undertone or overtone it was just a guy who really loved this other guy as a brother you know and that's kind of how it was i think Sometimes when you had a character that was just so open, like, you know, um, Barrett was his name, you know, you could interpret that as, oh, I bet he's gay for David Watson. But it wasn't. It was just like a, dude, I love you, man. And I love your art. And I'm here for you. Yeah. So, no, I don't. It's it's lovely as well. Yeah, like either interpretation is 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 good. I I was just wondering, like, when you guys were shooting, if there was any kind of intention for that. No, never. Either interpretation works. Nah, absolutely not. And because I could tell you, I know, I know for a fact it wasn't Paulie's intention. I could tell you, it was never the director's intention for that, and it was never the writer. It was never like a, a written thing that the directors felt like. You know, and Jonathan Prince, you know, who wrote it. Uh, yeah, no, it, it was just uh, he in the original script. He was like this real nerdy guy, Barrett, you know, so it was more of a nerdy open thing. But then, you know, Paulie came in with his look and his whatever. So maybe that coupled with that attitude would lean its way to to thinking he had, you know, uh, homosexual or the tendencies and whatever. But now that just. Yeah. And whether, you know, if people want to, inter- listen, movies, movies are out there for people to interpret how they want. It, it really doesn't matter. I could just, I could tell you it wasn't the, the intent, you know, again, you could write a song 
about whatever. And maybe that's not the intent, but if people are drawn to it for that reason, then so be it that, you know, whatever is going to give someone pleasure from watching that they're a hundred percent, you know, uh, uh, allowed to, to have all that, that feeling and, and those thoughts. I think that's great. So how do you feel 18 again holds up in 2022? Like when I purchased this film, it actually came on a double DVD set with Soul Man, which was made a few years before 18 again. Yeah, and I can tell you, yeah, that might be one of the most offensive major studio films ever made. That could be a um, rough one, yeah. So how, how do you think it stacks between like uh, against a lot of the other like 80s uh, teen comedies that came out? I, you know, I haven't seen 18 again in quite some time. I think the last time I saw some of it was when I think my kids were watching it for some reason. And they really don't like to see anything I'm in. You know, it's just weird to them. It's like, eh, no, you're you're dad. You're part of the furniture. You don't have a life. Um, <laughs> but I and and I think some of it. Some of it felt a little dated, but I tend to think that I, I tend to think that it, it probably would hold up in the sense that it's such a universal theme. Um, there's and I and you've probably seen it more recently than I have, but I really and I hope I, I don't think there's anything that was offensive at all. You know what I mean? And if anything was offensive, it was maybe George Burns's you know, kind of 1920s chauvinistic, whatever. But mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It was all, everything was very playful and nothing, I know nothing was ever done in harm or in spite or with malintent, you know? And I just know that when we showed up to the set, it was like, there was so much love in everybody's hearts and, and everybody just felt really good about this nice collaboration. Um, if anybody, you know, was hurt in its wake, you know, guess that's bad but i don't think anybody ever was i mean this is a movie that they would show like on mother's day and easter and you know what i mean back in the 90s when cable was by it was just it was all the time it was like on all those holidays yeah like i I think i I have obviously watched it a couple of times recently um and i i don't think it is offensive uh obviously yes uh george burns character is a bit of a chauvinist, but yeah. I, I don't think the film ever takes it to that level where it's uncomfortable to watch. And, right. and that he, just is never... a representation of that time and that culture. Yeah. And what makes it funny is that you're taking that old timey attitude and, and switching mm. it with a kid who was this progressive artist in 1987 in college. You know what I mean? So it was really, it was kind of like how Tootsie originally meant to be, you know, learning about women from the inside. And the same thing as learning about these new kids today from the inside. And you know what I mean? And really just coming to terms with what you've done wrong in your life and what you could do better in your life. Yeah. And, and even like, um, the your love interest in the film, she has her those interactions with her professor, which felt very relevant oh, so to creepy. a lot of the conversations that, yeah. that happen now. Um, but I was gonna say film, that not, that's not dated, that's like still yeah. happening as we speak, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it definitely holds up. Um, oh, well, good. So, between 1987 and 1988. 
we had Like Father, Like Son release uh, on October 87. Vice Versa came out in March 1988. Then 18 again came out in April 1988. And then finally Big came out in November 1988. So why do you think there was suddenly such an obsession in Hollywood with body swap movies? And did the cast of these movies have any kind of rivalry with each other? Any punch-ups with Kirk Cameron or Fred Savage? No, in fact, uh, I, you know, this was at a time also when, you know, we didn't have social media. You didn't know what everybody was up to every minute of the day. I think nowadays, if you had four movies that were either pre-production, post-production that had the same vibe, you know, we would know about it. I truly don't think I, I, I know we weren't in a rush to to film anything to finish anything before another movie happened um you know it's it's funny i know this is a show about the the swap the soul swapping thing but it seems like there were probably more films about vietnam within that year span than there were about soul switch you know what i mean yeah i, I think you know everything is kind of is kind of secular or it, it just kind of comes and goes ebbs and flows but um you're right that was it it was just kind of odd that like four very similar things happened at the same time so i i couldn't tell you and i I don't think like like father like son people could tell you i know you know uh, kirk cameron and i both had sons on the same uh club soccer team and uh it was kind of funny but and we talked about both being in like these soul switching movies and you know, like, yeah, he didn't know we were making one and we didn't know he was making one. And it just was what it was. You know what I mean? But again, it's it's a theme, as you know, going back to whenever that is it's kind of a tried and true theme. You know, and if it's done right, why not? You know, what I mean? it's not like you're reinventing the wheel, but you're presenting a different type of wheel that's really kind of cool. So, you know, if you're into that genre, why not? You know what I mean? It's it's not going to stop you from watching Freaky Friday. It's like, okay, you know, and sometimes you want to see like, God, how do they, I wonder how do they approach waking up in a new body? You know, cause it is, it's, it's a lifelong thing that we always say to ourselves. If we could walk a shoe in some, uh, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, you, you want to know, um, especially whether it means going back 50 years in time or ahead 50, whatever. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know. People just, well, you know, you have fans of the show who, who, <laughs> you know, like the genre. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, d- doing the show, we have discovered that, like, because we kind of started it, just we chose a subject and ran with it. But then doing it, we've discovered there are actual people that are devoted to this subgenre of film and storytelling yeah. and are really dedicated to it. All right, Paul, I think you should have a convention in Adelaide, a soul switching <laughs> convention, and I'll help you get like Fred Savage. We'll get, you know, Kirk Cameron out there. We'll get Jodie Foster from, we'll get, uh, you know, Lindsay Lohan. We'll get her and we'll get all these people and we'll just, you know, switch the shit out of each other. How's that? <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look Pauly, into it. I'll see Pauly Shores around, you know. <laughs> um, so I would like to ask you about some of the other pr- projects, if that's okay. Um, sure. So in 1989, you shot an Australian film, The Delinquents, opposite Kylie Minogue, a 1950s set drama about star-crossed lovers, 
how did you find yourself part of an Australian production? Um, I had, I had done a a few movies already. uh, And I was just, I was with an agency. I was with this company called CAA and a script came across their desk and um, a village road show and the director and whatever had just basically called and asked if I was interested in doing this film. Um, it was just a, a straight out offer. I didn't audition or anything. And I think they were at that time looking for, you know, someone who was doing well, uh, you know, in films who wasn't necessarily, who wasn't terribly famous, but just someone who they could kind of, you know, claim and, and cultivate and, you know, young enough that I, I would still be a fresh face to someone without being a tired old 20 year old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, like I said, I, I got the part. It was, it was interesting because um, the, the original script, I was Australian and then they basically, it was like the Australian consulate or something in order to get a work visa permit there they said well and and listen rightfully so they they said we don't want to have an american come to our country and take the job from an australian why can't you find an australian actor to play brownie hansen so they said okay he's american now (laughs) and so they and it's so funny because that was like that was like three weeks i think after being offered the role um, and me accepting it, I had like you know, just spun on my heels and, and I, I found a, a dialect coach and I started, you know, working on an Australian dialect. You know, this we tried to like, lo- you know, narrow it down. I think we couldn't really find like a, what a true Bundaberg accent would have been. But we did find, you know, we worked on like what Brisbane would be some some city sort of close to that area. And so we were working on that for a few weeks until we got the call saying, nah, flag on the play. You're just going to be uh, American. I was like, okay. So how, how good did your Australian accent get then? I don't know. I don't think it was that great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it, it might, it might've been, it might've been okay. Like I, I'm, I feel more comfortable now because I, now I do like tons of voiceovers and cartoons and stuff like that. So if, you know, if I have to be Australian, I don't mind. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's good enough for a cartoon. I do remember <laughs> like, I remember like, wh- why is it, why does it all have to be so nicely? You know, and so, <laughs> but and, and, like for me, like that was like the hardest thing working because I think just naturally I was kind of nasally. I was like, I don't want to like, and it didn't sound attractive at all. I'm like, you know, this is a love story. I'm not supposed to sound like whatever, like crocodile Dundee. Um, (laughs) But anyway, uh, yeah, I'd give myself uh, conservatively. I'd I'd give myself like a a C plus for the effort. (laughs) Well, being being an Australian film, I can tell you that when Americans do Australian accent in our movies. We yeah. are like super critical. So you probably dodged a bu- bullet there. Oh um, yeah. Because even there was a guy who, the guy who played, uh, I don't know, Mavis, was it Mavis's boyfriend or something? Mm-hmm. He's supposed to be from somewhere. I don't know if it was from Liverpool. I don't know. Were they British? Mm-hmm. In the movie? 
Yeah, yeah, he was because uh, he sounds like one of the Beatles. And people gave him <laughs> so much shit. Like, what is that accent? I was like, wow, that, I thought it sounded really good to me. But <laughs> Lyle, that was his name, Lyle. Lyle and Mavis were the, were the two characters. Yeah. Um, and I thought he sounded great. But man, you guys were giving him shit. I will say on the other side of the token, you guys, when you come here to the States, it's like, oh, my God. Does it, can every Australian sound like American with ease? <laughs> it sounds so easy to you guys. And I'm like always shocked. I keep going, oh my God, that guy's Australian. I thought he was from New York or whatever. <laughs> I'll tell you, you know who the, who would have gotten the role of Brownie? I had, was it Ben Mendelsohn? Yes. Who I didn't even know was Australian. Cause I didn't even know who <laughs> he was until I was watching, um, Something blood, 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 something. I don't know. It was a series uh, on Netflix. Yeah, no, I blood? do. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it wasn't true blood. Uh, um, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, had blood in the title. Yeah, yeah. And he's so good. I mean, he's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Then so I so, said, yeah, you know. And then I had read an article. I was like, get out! That guy was going to be Brownie Hansen if I didn't do it. <laughs> Um, so obviously Kylie Minogue's your co-star in this film and she's like an Australian icon. And uh, even back then she was already like a household name thanks to her TV and music. Um, did you have any idea how huge she was when you no. shot the film? No, I n- never heard of her. And my agents didn't hear of her either. There's like, <laughs> uh, I, it's like Kylie Minogue. I said, who's he? Uh, because even the name <laughs> Kylie was not even a name that you would hear in the States. Like ever. There was... Go back in history. I don't think there was a Kylie until like Kylie Jenner. <laughs> and that's for real. So, no, I, I had no idea who she was. And, you know, yeah, none. Which maybe made it better. You know what I mean? Sometimes because, yeah. you know, you, you just show up and it's in it's a, you know, level playing field. So mm-hmm. but she was great to work with. Uh, um, And did you guys get along uh, outside of the shooting or? Yeah, I think so. You know, she she always had a full plate, always had to be here, be there and do stuff. And, you know, um, you know, honestly, we, so we, we probably didn't hang around together that much just because, like I said, it, she always was, you know, winging off to somewhere to be with Jason, whoever and this and that. And yeah. just, you know, there were just a lot of demands, I guess, on her at that time. Uh, yeah. so, you know, I really, I was just, I'm usually a guy who hangs out with the crew. Like that's who I yeah. end up being <laughs> friends with the gaffers, the best boy, the whoever. Um, mm-hmm. but no, I, you know, uh, yeah, I didn't really hang. I tried to get in touch with Kylie not that long ago and to no avail. Um, you know, I called a lot of her people. I was, uh, doing this thing for, uh, the leukemia lymphoma society I was yeah. raising money. And for which I raised a, a ton of money for these people. And anyway, I, I did. I tried to reach out to Kylie because I know she's also a cancer survivor like myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I never got a response. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> yeah, I'm still not um, big enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I was watching some videos of the, the press tour of that film um, and she seemed to be getting a lot of slack for like attempting like an edgier role and the fact that the film had nudity and sex scenes, which like the like Australian audiences weren't used to in regards to her. And it almost seemed like in some of the interviews that she seemed very attacked. Like, was that genuine? Like, did she, was she feeling that pressure when she was doing the press for that film? 
you know, <clears throat> I was a 22 year old guy. I, I, I wasn't very uh, tuned into her pressures. Uh, you know, I was just, <laughs> I was just a single guy loose in Australia. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you'd have to ask her what was going on in her head at that time. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. The, you know, like I said, I never saw the neighbor show. So I don't yeah. know like what her image was, except like, you know, yeah. she would tell me sometimes and, you know, I, I guess I, you know, acted like I care. I, I don't know. Uh, it just, uh, it didn't, you know, it's just, okay, well, yeah. we're here. To, we're just making a movie. And, the, you know, if you look at that movie now, there's not a lot of edge to it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It went, it, I, like, I mean, comparatively to what you see, what you see young actresses and actors having to do today, I really, mm. I feel bad. You know what I mean? Not that I, I feel mm. bad, but it's just, it's a different game. It's almost like it's almost required of a young actress mm. to be naked at some point. And even actors, mm. it's like total full mm. frontal nudity. And there's no, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's just no shame or there's so much gratuitous sex. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's, uh, it is offensive. I, I find a lot of it like, you know, it's just stuff you can't watch with your kids anymore. And I know I'm, I'm like starting to turn into an old man by saying these kids with their rock and roll, but, um, but it is, it's, it's just sort of sad that, you know, you can't be an actor anymore without having to, you know, have that fear. So be it in, in the back of your head, like, Oh, what if I have to do this or that? You know, did back, you feel pressured having to do the nude scene in the delinquents or no, you know, in fact, we had a, we, there's a few other nude scenes that were cut um and it, it was very it was actually very you know all from the back and and again it was like such ladies and gentlemen on that set so like when you had to do something like that but there was a scene where there was a scene where i got i get crabs which was cut because we go to singapore or something like that me and the bosun and i get crabs and i get like this big insect repellent can and there's me like alone in these showers, just standing there naked, spraying this thing on my junk. And uh, that was cut. But it was so funny when I walked out or onto the set to shoot that. I looked around and I go, you're kidding me. It was all women. Like no guys were there. <laughs> and it was a girl behind the camera and a girl, you know, directing. It's OK. What's going on here? But it was funny. And like back then you could, kind of, you know, you could kind of have a sense of humor about it. Um, yeah, but it is, it, you know, it's, it's not like the most comfortable thing in the world to do nude scenes. So you do, you, you know, like I said, fortunately, I think maybe because it was Australian, they were very, um, you know, I don't want to say proper about it, but everyone was very respectful of the whole process. Mm -hmm. And and that's probably mm -hmm. based on how great Chris Thompson was the director, you know, mm -hmm. who, who set the tone for that. And I think he knew that you know, uh, Kylie was somebody who had to be handled very delicately also, you know, who mm -hmm. I guess, you know, like me hadn't done nude scenes or sex scenes or whatever. So it just had to be done. You know, you had to kind of choreograph it, which, which they kind of do now, you know, with mm -hmm. these intimacy coaches and whatever, we didn't have that. We yeah. just kind of said, okay, <laughs> at some point, you know, move your hand to this area and we'll have a camera here and that. And so you're like, okay, but you just, you know, you really respected each other. It wasn't like ready, set, get them you know <laughs> yeah you, you know you you were just you were actors and you and you cared about like what you were putting out on film and you also cared about you know your your co-star as well and, the, and their comfort yeah um so another giant project that you did in your career was the 1999 sorry the 1990 tv show ferris bueller 
um, oh, based on the iconic John Hughes film, uh, where you co-starred beside Jennifer Aniston. Um, did you have any worries about stepping into the shoes of such an iconic character? No, <clears throat> you know, sadly I didn't, uh, you, you know, that's one of those things where they say, Hey, Charlie. And I, I think I was like 24 at the time. Hey, Charlie, here's a lot of money to do something really <laughs> bad. And you go, okay. And then that's pretty much the last project you do with that agent. <laughs> uh, so at the time you felt like you were doing something not great. I, you know, it's, it's so funny. Like the, the pilot, actually the pilot wasn't, horrible and it had it, it was funny it had like good people involved john macius who was the creator had done saint elsewhere he you know so you had people like with a good track record we did the pilot and then once the script started coming in and what it turned into it 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 just wasn't good it wasn't good at all um and and there was another show called parker stevens can't lose i think something like that Lewis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that, you know, they got it right. That you know, cuz theirs was edgy and theirs was more, you know, ours ours was a show that could have been called The Bueller's. And you know, it just I don't know. It, and I don't think that people I don't think that people were offended by like, "Oh, how dare you do? How dare you be, you know, Ferris Bueller or whatever?" Cuz you know, that that's something that's happened forever. It, it wasn't the first time a TV series happened because of a movie mash. Uh, you know, I mean the odd couple you go down the line. There's a ton of move or TV shows that were based on movies. Um, it just, like I said, it, it wasn't very good. <laughs> so in, in the, uh pilot episode in the yeah. opening scene you actually take a standee of matthew broderick out of your closet cut his head off yeah cut his head off with a chainsaw like was that approved by broderick or did he have any no he has no because he has no rights to it i mean it's just you know i mean if someone wants to to cut my head off from you know 18 again <laughs> i don't i don't have any legal claim to that you know what i mean it just is what it is um I, you know, and so far, I don't, I don't, I've never even met Matthew. We have mutual friends, but I don't think he, I don't even think he knew that there was a series called Ferris Bueller, nor would he care <laughs> at this point. Um, but no, I, you know, you just kind of, you know, I, I think, I think John, John Hughes actually uh, approved of, of everything, you know, cause he had to be a part of it as well. And so yeah. I think he had kind of signed off, uh, basically saying yeah you can do this this or that whatever with my characters i think you know we were probably limited to some degree i don't know but again you know when you're like a 20 something year old kid and they're like here's a bunch of money cut off that head okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I mean it, it is actually like watching that pilot it, it is actually a bit ahead of its time in terms of how meta it is. I think that's a, yeah. a much more common thing now, but uh no, you're right. You're yeah. right. And here's the thing. And, but the pilot, and it was like one of the most viewed pilots of all time. It like the ratings for that thing were through the roof. But then when it went to series, it was like, ah, eh, it just slowly went away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just kind of got lost in the thirties and the forties and in the ratings, whatever. And, 
you know, it was probably just too expensive of a show to do another series. We probably, I mean, another season, we probably could have. But again, I think it would have taken a lot of extra money on the part of uh, NBC and whoever else, Paramount, to keep this thing afloat. And it probably just wasn't worth it. But um, I had I had fun, you know, I I have fun doing everything, Paul, to be honest with you. You know, I I don't care. I'm happy to be alive uh, because I know I could be digging holes for a living. I've known that since I'm 16, so I'm okay. But yeah. <laughs> um, like I said, I had fun, met great people. I, I always try to like, in fact, the guy who played uh, Rooney, the, the principal, Richard Reilly is mm-hmm. his name. I've done countless shows with him at the, to this point mm-hmm. uh, and plays. And he's somebody who's in my life that I love. Uh, so there are, there's some really great things that have happened because of that. But, you know, again, <laughs> I, I don't think uh, in, in hindsight, I never really had a lot of ambition. I think I just kind of went from one project to the next thinking, okay, this is money. This is a job. Because to me, life is just working. It's having mm-hmm. a job. And I love having a job. And I love working. Um, and back then, I think I think the money kind of made me more excited than it should have. Uh, mm-hmm. You go, wow, they want to pay me that for this? Okay. But yeah, I, I, I saw your Jay Leno interview uh, when you were promoting uh, Ferris Bueller and you were pretty much just talking about your paycheck. Yeah. Cause it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know that. At, and at that point, like I was getting as much as Roseanne was getting for her show. And I was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. It only lasted <laughs> one season, but still, um, but it is, it's, it's pretty stupid that they just, you know, cause I listen, I always just thought I would go to college. I would major in, I would major in musical theater. And after I graduate, I'll just get a small apartment in New York and I'll audition for plays every now and then I'll be in one. And that's my life. That was really, that's as high as I set that bar. And then, like I said, I auditioned for 18 again. I got, I got stuff and it it just kind of kept going. So, you know, it just is Um, what it is. So that part of your life where you're starring on like a teen centered primetime TV show, you're doing all these like press tours. I saw you getting interviewed by Will Smith and Jay Leno. Um, well, no, that wasn't, you know, the funny thing is the thing that you saw with Will Smith was uh, he and I, because uh, he was doing Fresh Prince, which was the same yeah. year as Ferris Bueller. So they were the eight to eight thirty. We were the eight thirty to nine and they had Will and I host it was it was called Friday Night Videos. So we're sitting uh, together, and that's what we had done. We hosted a video show together. Oh, cool. Um, well, yeah. like, yeah, so you, you're doing all that kind of stuff. You're doing photo spreads for, like, Teen Beat magazine. I saw you were on the cover of the magazine with the headline, Vote for Your Fave Rude Boy uh, <laughs> at Corky Nemac versus Charlie Schlatter. <laughs> Schlatter. Um, wow like, what is it like being part of that machine oh. I, I you know honestly i don't know because i blinked and i missed it uh th- that's really all i could tell i mean every now and then you'd, you'd have like somebody from new jersey call you slaughter i saw this thing called slaughter mania what the hell is that you little weasel you know i don't know man i'm just trying to get some pizza in this town uh yeah it just uh you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I tried not to give it much credibility and maybe I played it wrong. I don't know. Maybe I should have. But it just, you know, to me, it was just, 
I don't know, just just side noise. You know, I, I just always tried yeah. to focus on just finding a good project and finding, you know, then you get to a point where it's like, okay, you got to stop doing garbage. You got to try and find some stuff that's good. Um, and then, you know, the diagnosis murder thing came along and, and just to do that for as many years as I did with Dick Van Dyke, that was just, that was just a masterclass in, in acting, you know, for however many years I was on that show, just working with someone like that was unbelievable. Yeah. Well, that, that was going to be my next question actually, because like growing up, my two major staples in my house were Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Mary Poppins. Like, oh, yeah. Van Dyke was a constant presence in my life. And then, obviously, when Diagnosis Murder came out, it was uh, like family viewing for us. We'd, we'd definitely watch that every Friday night, whatever it was on uh, yeah. TV. Um, so, yeah, it would. I'm guessing it would have been amazing working opposite Dick Van Dyke. It was, it was, it was, you know, it, it was like working with the Easter bunny every day. I mean, just something magical about the guy. And, you know, it, it, again, there'd be, there'd be times where you just sit next to him and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm sitting here talking to Dick Van Dyke and he's talking to me and we're <laughs> friends. Uh, it, it was just, it's weird, you know, because like you said, you grew up on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and, and uh, Mary Poppins, but yeah, when you're just sitting there for a while with the guy, you think this is it's it was surreal. Even after six or seven years of doing it, you were still like, this is really weird. Um, <laughs> but he was honestly just just the best. You know what I love about guys like Dick Van Dyke and and George Burns is they never they never sit you down as the younger man to say, OK, Paul, this is this is how you need to do things never you those guys are so great you just sit back and if you're if you're a human being you can't help but look at them and and learn from just the way they conduct themselves the way they approach the business the way they're the first ones on the set the last ones to leave they never complain they know their lines they hit their marks and you know and it really wasn't until then i i always really tried to be a professional about everything but it really wasn't until that diagnosis murder that i really i think i developed a really healthy work habit and and i think a lot of that is because of dick and because you had all these co-stars would come in too people like brian cranston and cloris leachman and just great great actors and Mm. if you knew you were doing a couple scenes with them you wanted to be at the top of your game you know what i mean and you wanted to provide an environment for these people in your home that they were going to be comfortable in uh, so I, I really tried to, to learn that way, but you do, you just, and, and you learn that you could be happy in your seventies, eighties and nineties still doing this, which is encouraging too, to say, Oh, I don't need to retire. There's still, you could still find joy in this business at the age of 80 years old, you know? Yeah. You could even remake 18 again when you're 81. You could, I could possibly in like, you know, 50 <laughs> years or so. um so you've become a prolific voice actor um in some huge animated series and video games voicing characters like the flash and uh batowski um do you think you're developing a preference for voiceover over live action projects i do i you know i uh yeah i think i really uh try to make a long story not eternity Years and years ago, I, I got leukemia, 
And so, uh, but I had already been doing a few cartoons. I already had a voice career. Uh, I had a manager that was great, had a voiceover agent that was great, had an on-camera theatrical agent, they're called, the people who book me or, you know, help me to find work on TV, movies, whatever. I basically had a lunch, I'll make a long, like I said, had a lunch with the agents on a Monday after I had been going through treatments for cancer, uh, basically told them on a Monday, hey, by the way, I have cancer, um, but I'm good. I'm going through treatments. I'm getting healthier. Hair is coming back, all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that's really great, Charlie. Well, good. You look really good. Great. Okay, see you soon. And I shit you not, Paul, I think it was like two days later when I get the call saying, hey, listen, Charlie, we're... uh, you know, um, we're kind of thinning the herd over here at the agency. And unfortunately, we're not going to pick up your contract. I said, okay, that's really great. Bye. And it was at that moment that I thought, okay, I'm just going to do theater in little theaters in LA. I'm going to, you know, kind of get lost in my voice career. And, and that's what I do because that was, that was the community that really said, Hey, it's okay, dude, if you have cancer or not, we're going to hire you. We're still going to work with you. We're, and, and so, you know, I, I owe so much to this community and, and I just love it. I love mm-hmm. it's so incestuous. I, I mean, I, I work with like the same 10 freaking actors on every cartoon, <laughs> no matter what. Um, and every now and then I do. I pop up in like For All Mankind or Feud or something. I pop mm-hmm. up in stuff on camera. But now it's just because, oh, I really like that director. I really like that writer. I really like that show. And, you know, Shameless. I love the show Shameless. I, I want to be in that. And so I got in that. Um, but I just, you know, I don't have that young energy to say, okay, I gotta, I, I gotta be in this movie and that movie and worry about a career. Or, I, I, I'm so done like thinking about a career. I care about just working and, and doing jobs that now are fulfilling. I love teaching. Um, but for the most part, yeah, I, I do. I really like the cartoons. You know, I sit here in my, my little booth and we have Zoom meetings and I make my fart noises with a bunch of other adults. And it's, <laughs> it's really great. So I am. I'm, I'm, I'm super lucky that way. So I, I do. I, I do kind of choose that. I still look for things, like I said, on camera. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I just don't like lose sleep over it. I'm so not emotionally. I'm just not emotionally attached to work. I like to work, but I don't. It's not like when you're younger and you go, I really got to get that role. I got to get that role. You know, there are some things that I'd still love to do and plays I would love. Like I, I, there are plays I would love, love, love to do. But, um, but again, you know, to me, I, I've got a family. I've got a wife. I've got kids. I've got so many like blessings in my life that theatrical stuff is just, it's sadly, not sadly, but just it, it takes a backseat to anything else right now. So are there any projects in your filmography that you feel are underseen or that you would love for people to have discovered? Um, <clears throat> nah. <laughs> in a word, nah. <laughs> uh, I can tell you there were, you know, there've been a couple cartoons I've done that that I really like. There was a there was a series called Pet Alien that mm-hmm. I thought was was brilliant and it was uh myself with three other actors and we did all the voices for all these crazy characters um 
and it was canceled for just you know bad politics you know people not making the right deals and well if we mm -hmm. can't get this money we're taking our marbles and we're going home kind of that stuff so a show just folded for no reason um but there was that thing that i really liked and then i there was a, a show that i had done i did a pilot and we did i think we were on our fourth episode when they pulled the plug uh i think that was that might have been a paramount or try or tristar pictures or, i don't know um it was called circus and it, it was a funny it was a funny little show it was by uh, some of the people who did married with children uh mm -hmm. created this thing it was with roger reese i don't know if you know who he is the the british actor who did nicholas nickleby he's a tony award-winning okay. guy he was also on cheers forever uh just yeah great like i mean so well respected british actor mm -hmm. And anyway, it was about this kid, me, who runs away from his family to join a circus to become a clown. And he's a horrible clown, but he's in and he wants to be with his hero, Kelso, the clown, who's like a raging, angry alcoholic. And the whole thing just takes place, you know, in a circus tent. We had, you know, little people. We had bearded women. We had everything. And it was some of the funniest damn writing I've ever like said in my life. And unfortunately they pulled the plug on us because our producer was in a fight with someone else at the studio. Um, there's like, I, I don't want to say there's books written about it, but there's many articles written about the pilot circus and why it ended and stuff like that. But yeah, but that was so one that, that's one that I wish that kind of did something you know, I, I've done a lot of other pilots where I go, yeah, this ain't going anywhere. And they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so can you find Circus anywhere or is it lost to the ages? I I couldn't. Maybe you probably could. If something exists, it's out there. You know, I, I don't I don't have the technical know-how or, or the time <laughs> in the day to look for it. Um, because even if I found it, what would I do with it? I'd watch it again. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, and I rarely watch anything that I'm in. I, I, I've been like that almost my whole career. It's very rare that I will watch something that I'm in. Um, so do you have any exciting projects coming up or anything that you're currently working on? I have. Uh, I'm starring. Star, I'm, I'm in a show right now called Big Nate, which is uh, a Nickelodeon cartoon, which is, uh, I think it's like the number one streaming show on paramount plus tv um so that's happening I, i'm ch i play chad and that this little 11 year old fat red-headed kid yeah my nephew reads the big night book so i'm sure he watches the show as well <laughs> it's such a great series it's it's i mean the the comic book series it's really great and so yeah it's based on that uh i did another show right now that i'm doing with jane lynch and beanie feld feldstein uh called harriet the spy and that's on apple plus tv and then I just started recording a new series uh, for Mattel called Hot Wheels. You know the cars? So yeah. I'm a talking car. And, and I think that one's going to be really, really good. And I will say, like, I do. I, I love doing cartoons. And I love the fact that I'm in this cast with Big Nate where all the characters, we were able to read a script for a bunch of fourth graders a week ago. And, mm -hmm. you know, to me, like, that's... That's the stuff that's really fulfilling about a career. 
and being able to do stuff with any amount of, you know, quote unquote celebrity. Um, mm -hmm. It's nice when you could just kind of give back like that. I, I, I find that so fulfilling as opposed to someone walking down the street going, yo, Ferris, what's up, man? You know, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but now that you could do stuff and even like, even like Diagnosis Murder, a lot of my fan base and people that write to me who actually like write handwritten letters are 80 years old, 90 years old. So they're in the kind of the twilight years and, yeah. and I'm able to kind of reach out and write back to them and send them pictures and call or, or whatever they, you know, request. I try to honor mm -hmm. like all those requests because it's so cute. They're like a million years old and they remember you and hey dr jesse i have a cute angina you, know, and you, you, know, you, have to, you just have to abide um so that like i said paul that's that's like one of the nicest parts of of what we do you know just sharing yeah that's that's really beautiful and like you know obviously agreeing to do shows like this you know not you know we're not giant and it, we really do appreciate the fact that oh, no. you've taken and the it, time out of your day to come always to us, listen so. you know I, I i hate that i hate when people ah i don't know i don't know if i have time to do that today what am i you know it's like hey you want to sit with someone for an hour and talk to them about something that you really love that you could contribute to I'll do that any day of the week. You know, I mean, I'm not going to do it every day of the week, Paul, so don't get any ideas. But um, <laughs> listen, if someone calls you and says, hey, I've got this podcast about something as crazy as body swapping, you know, it's like, <laughs> all right, sign me up. I'm, I'm in. You know what I mean? I'll do it. I don't care. Uh, well, we, we really appreciate it. Um, well, I appreciate so. you guys. Thank you so much. Thank Who's the you. next soul um, switcher in your lined up for you? Do you have one yet? Uh, as in uh, next interview or a next movie that we're yeah, going to be covering? Yeah, like the next the next interview. Um, I haven't lined up any uh, interviews, um, but uh, if you know of any, like if you can reach out to Kurt Cameron, let us know. <laughs> I'll see. I'll see if I could send you something, and, uh, but you didn't. You didn't get it from me. <laughs> um. But yeah, it's been a true pleasure and honor to speak to you today. Um, we Aww. really appreciate it. Um, so what's the best way for our listeners to keep track of your upcoming pro projects and to kind of see you on online? I honestly, Paul, I suck. I don't, you know, I don't like, you know, I don't advertise a lot of stuff, but I do. I'm on Instagram. Just you look for mm -hmm. Charlie Schlatter and you'll see my face. It pops up and that is me. Um, and then, you know, believe it or not, like just on Facebook, I'm, I'm pretty good at like reaching out and I, I put out stuff like, oh, I'm on an episode of whatever. I put it out there. Mm -hmm. I'm on Twitter. I don't think I've looked at that account in years because I just hate it. Every time I go on mm -hmm. Twitter, everyone's just mean, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'm just trying to catch some giant scores. Uh, and that's about <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. but yeah, I think mostly like Instagram is, is probably like the easiest place. Cause every now and then I'll put out, Oh, my band is playing here or well, I'm doing this or that, you know, but I, I hate all that self promotion stuff. I'm really like, I'm horrible mm -hmm. at it. Are you good at it? Are you good at promoting the show and stuff? Uh, you know, I, we have an Instagram that I kind of post every time we do a new episode, but, uh, good, good. yeah, I, str I struggle with it. I do struggle with it as well. Maybe, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I should get it. And, you know, my daughters, 
Like they're, I guess what's called like influencers and, you know, they get all this free <laughs> crap in the mail. It's like, if you're just like a pretty white girl in a bathing suit, you're going to get free stuff. And that's them. They just, <laughs> you know, they have jobs, but they also <laughs> just get like free clothing all, all the time. And I go, Hey, I'll take that, that hoodie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know how to work it, but maybe it's better off. I don't know how to work it, you know? <laughs> well, you quietly. seem to be doing fine without it. Like, I'm honestly, right. if, if right. you can, if you can live your life and you don't need it, I think that's a positive. Yeah, I think you're right. And also just, you know, living with with some sort of anonymity too. It, it's nice because the people who do recognize me are, are usually very kind. But a lot of times people don't. And that's like, it's, it's a blessing. I don't, I really don't want fame. You know what I mean? In that, in that sense, I, I love success and I like to be successful at things that I love doing. Don't get me wrong. But, I, I really, I don't want to be that guy that, you know, you're in traffic and they go, hey, Paul, I recognize you from, you know, it's like, oh, no, I just want to be a sheep. I really do. Yeah. And I bet like you probably have known a lot of very famous people and you can see firsthand of what it can do to them and what their yeah. lives are like. So you probably have a deeper appreciation than most. And I see what it could turn them into as well, you know. And it's, it's, mm. it's usually not, it, it's not for the better. You know what I mean? I don't know a lot of people who get famous and then get better, become mm. a better person because of it. And myself as well. I don't, I don't think I was at the best Charlie I could be when I was in my early twenties and a lot of people knew who I was. I don't think that guy is somebody that, you know, I'd want to hang out with right now. I like, I like Charlie from like 35 on, you know, I like that guy. <laughs> Well, um, thanks again for being on the podcast. Um, thanks, and uh, yeah, uh, if you ever want to come back, just let us know. <laughs> if you want to review someone else's body swap movie, you're more than welcome. <laughs> I'll also um, review with you, okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so that's it for another episode of the Swapcast podcast, and uh, we'll hear from you next time. Thanks, buddy. The Swapcast podcast is recorded in Adelaide, Australia. It's hosted by Paul Mitzi and edited by Brendan Levi and Paul Mitzi. Our theme song was written and performed by John Marco of Too Creative, featuring Lucy Thomas, and recorded at Browntown Studios. Our music bumpers were created by Reggie Parker. Contact him on parkerregmusic at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.